Welcome to episode 118 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Well, hey there, brother. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, we're back at it. It's a new year, which is very exciting. We've got some Happy awesome new, new stuff. Happy New Year to you as well, even though I saw you on New Year's, so it's not like... This is the first time you're wishing me Happy New Year. That's that's factually correct. It's true. It's true. Well, now that we now that I brought that all the way down from our exciting intro. <laughs> well, let me start by saying I feel a little bit sad, but in a happy way, because this is the very last in our series of what we've been calling Heresy Cast. So it's bittersweet because in some ways we've kind of run out of heresies because we talked about a lot of different heresies. We did, but it's also joyful because that means we won't be regularly talking about total disruptions and misinformation about the scriptures. Yeah, I have a feeling that we're probably still going to be regularly talking about disruptions and misinformations, but just not in as formal of a way. That's true. It's true. There, there's always somebody saying something crazy. Uh, and proof of that is today when I was praying before distributing the bread in the Lord's Supper, I accidentally denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that was funny. <laughs> So it can happen to anybody, oh. folks. Wait, wait. So so give us a play-by-play on that. So I was praying and I said, as we partake of this bread, right? I, I'm a deacon, so I'm, I'm distributing it. I wasn't presiding over the table, but I, pr- I pray before I hand out the bread. And right. I said, so as we partake of this bread, remind us of the death of your son as we anticipate his resurrection. <laughs> so I think I was trying to say as we anticipate his return. But, but it just came out with me leaving him in the grave. So sorry about that, Jesus. But I can't tell you how many times that thing, that kind of thing has happened to me. We could yeah. fill a whole podcast with that because I, I'm of the belief, I don't know where you are on this, but I'm of the belief that one of the best things you can do if you're going to be presiding over some portion of the gathered public worship is to prepare beforehand, even if that's mm-hmm. the prayer. It, it's totally okay, I think, to almost to script it in your mind in a sense of bringing together these authentic words that are expressing something that you know you're going to want to be able to say succinctly and well yeah. when you're up in front of people. And yet also how many times I prepared in my heart and worshiped ahead of time and been ready to do that very thing. And then it just all leaves you. So how yep. gracious God is that this just shows how good, actually this ties into what we're talking about tonight, it does. how good God is when at best, sometimes all we do is, is jack it up, even though we're trying our best to worship him in spirit and in truth. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing that he accepts our works on account of Jesus Christ instead of on our own merits because Amen. There'd be nothing nothing for me to give to him except the just nonsense that comes out of my mouth on a regular basis. I just got burnt stubble. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So Jesse, we have some exciting news. We've been talking about this a little bit uh for the last couple episodes. But since this is our last heresy cast and it's easier for podcasts to do series and not have to like come up with new content all the time. We are doing book cast. So we're going to do book club over the next however many months. I don't know how many One months. One million it is. years. One million years. Maybe we're just going to do book club forever and we'll just always have a new book we're doing, which is probably what will happen. But this time around, which I think will probably take us about a year, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that, actually, because I think there's more than probably. 12 chapters. We're going to go through Reformed Preaching by Joel Beakey. 
um, which is published by Crossway. It's a very excellent book. Um, both you and I and Dad actually read the intro over our holiday break, over Christmas break, and I was just kind of like in awe of it. So I'm not, I'm not going to go further in depth on that because that's going to be the episode in a couple weeks, but it is a phenomenal book. And it's funny because there's a guy that I work with at the hospital who's a Christian, and I was telling him about this book, and he's like, oh, well, I'm not a preacher. And I said, well, it's not just for preachers. He's like, well, what do you mean? And so I was explaining to him that like reading this book will not just if you're if you're a pastor or someone who enters the pulpit from time to time, uh, it's not just going to make you a better preacher, but it's going to make you a better sermon listener as well, because you're going to understand some of the theology behind preaching. Even if your pastor doesn't follow this kind of preaching or doesn't doesn't preach with this in mind, it's still going to put you in a mindset of what what the point of a sermon is in a way that's going to make sermons more effective for you. Right on. That's well said. There's already stuff in just the first chapter, not to spoil it, that straight up floored me. Like things yeah. I hadn't thought about before, expressions that I was not familiar with in terms of trying to really quantify and qualify what reform preaching is. Yeah. So if you go to a church, if you have a pastor, if you are a Christian, this book is for you. And I think even if you are not in kind of vocational or quote unquote formal ministry, I hate that title, but formal yeah. ministry, this is going to be, I think, a great touch point for you to have conversations with your own pastor, really yeah. to kind of get into what it means to proclaim the scriptures on the Lord's day. So I've already been like immensely blessed by this. And I was, I'll be honest, I was a little bit skeptical about really how relevant it would be to my life. Yeah. And I've just been blown away. In like the first four pages, I was like, I just had to set it down and just kind of worship because yeah. Joel Beakey really does a fantastic job of articulating some things that I've really never thought about. And now that I've read those words that he's written, I've often since then considered, how have I not thought about this before? So yeah. you'll be blessed. So everybody come along for the ride. Go out to... Um, I guess in particular, the Westminster Theological Seminary Bookstore Yep, is where we're encouraging people to go. Support them. Go get a copy of Reformed Preaching by Joel Beakey and come hang out with us for the next year as every month we go through a chapter. Yep. So we're going to uh, record the first episode of the inaugural Reformed Brotherhood Bookcast. Uh, and we're going to release that episode on the 23rd. So this episode will be airing on Wednesday, January 9th. Uh, so you have two weeks to get the first, uh, get the book and read the first chapter. And the first chapter is not like the syllabus day of a college course. Like it's, you jump in right away. It's going to hit you hard. I've read it twice because it, like it just needs to ruminate a little bit. Um, but it, and it, it's a little bit longer. The chapters are long. So it's going to take a little bit of diligence to make sure you're doing it, but you're going to have a month to read each chapter. Um, and we're not going to do like the uh, reform forum, like analyze every word on every page kind of thing like they're doing on Voss Group. Um, I love Voss Group, but that's really not what we're going for. What we're really going to do is we're going to give like a short summary of, right. of what the chapter says. Um, we might unpack a little bit of theology, but then we're really going to focus kind of on like what's the actual impact that this is going to have on our life. And one thing that I was thinking about, you know, I, I don't know any pastors who would look at their congregation and go, man, I wish that my congregation took the preaching of the word less seriously. Um, I think every pastor wants their congregation to recognize that the preaching of the word on the Lord's day is the culmination of the Christian week. It's like the pinnacle of 
the liturgical calendar for the Christian is the Amen. preaching of the word on, on the Lord's day. And so a book that helps us take this more seriously, you know, what? buy a copy for yourself, buy a copy for your pastor, read it together. Um, it's really going to be something that I think you'll, you'll find edifying. Or just go Oprah style. Like you get reform preaching. Yep. You get reform preaching. <laughs> Everybody. Make Everybody this your, gets make this your resolution, which we've, we've kind of done, I guess, like inadvertently. Yeah. Uh, even Jonathan Edwards was like resolved to listen to Reform Brotherhood and read Reform preaching. It's true. It was the seventy first uh, rev- resolution that it doesn't make the, the like the published versions very often. Right. Look it up. It was in his yeah, private journal. It's true. True. True story. Uh, it's right next to John Owen's red boots, which are actually a historical <laughs> fact. But <laughs> those red boots are quickly, I think, becoming like the unofficial mascot of our podcast. I would like it. Um, Maybe for my birthday in a month, if you bought me a pair of red boots. Oh, you don't would, even want to tempt me with that. I would rock the heck out of those boots. I would wear them well, everywhere. So here's the thing, though. The way I'm, in, it, I want, I'm curious if you're in the same page on the same page with me on this. The way I'm envisioning these red boots is like high quality, like serious leather. I would say almost cowboy style, but a little bit more yeah. sophisticated, so to speak, yeah. because they would have been European. But I'm I'm picturing these as like a serious amount of red dyed leather. Are you down yeah. with that? Yeah, they. I don't know if they would have been leather, but however they were, they would have been red and glorious. And I'm thinking like at least up to the knee, if not like higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I'm thinking too. Yeah, like serious boots. Yeah these these boots were made for theology. Yep. This has been your uh, red boot cast. <laughs> Until next time. Yeah, so we should probably get into an actual topic this week. Yeah, let's week. do that. Otherwise, we need to resolve to get better segues in 2019. Yes. So what are we talking about today? So we are wrapping up our Heresy Cast series. And this is not to say that there are not other potential heresies out there. But for the most part, we feel as though all of the, the heresies we've covered have been broad enough to encompass kind of like every major error that the church has come up against. Now there's all these, you know, like the prosperity gospel, there's sort of modern heresies that if you really drill down into them, they're just sort of a subspecies of some other heresy. And there's a few, what you might call like minor heresies that have kind of come along the way. Like we're not going to address the Pneumatomachian error, which is really just sort of like Arianism when applied to the Holy Spirit. So everything we said about Arianism, everything we said about how to refute Arianism applies to Pneumatomachianism. But today what we're going to address, and I think when I think about this, this is kind of the most practical heresy, if you want to put it that way. As in this, this heresy is one of those things that actually affects the piety and the practice of the church, probably more than some of the other ones, which are a little bit more esoteric. And we tried to tease out some of the practical implications of them. But this heresy is really about the life of the church and the interaction that a Christian has with the church and with the means of grace through the church. And so the the heresy or heresies we're covering tonight, it's really the same heresy, but it, it cropped up in the early church under the name of Novationism. And then it came back around about 100 years later under the name of Donatism. Um, and so we have these two heresies, which are basically the same thing, um, but they really argue that the church as an institution, the church as an organism, has to be a pure organism or a pure institution or all of the things that God wants to do through the church and in the church can't happen. So it really, you know, we're going to, we're going to drill down into it, but when you all boil it all down, what it really is saying is that God is limited 
by the moral uprightness or the moral holiness of the people that he's called. And so this, this ties into our life, our sanctification. It really has a lot of kind of like tentacles that get out into everything. I like how you summarized that. That was spot on because if I were to take like one sentence to try to summarize Donatism, like to make it even more specific based on what you said was to, and this is, we're talking about like a schism in the church of Carthage from the fourth right. to sixth centuries. Yep. But it basically was this challenge that Christian clergy in particular must be faultless for their ministry to be effective and their prayers and sacraments to be valid. Right. And that really has a lot of relevance for how we live today, whether we believe it or not, because in many ways we think the same thing sometimes when we're tested. Yep. And so it's important to note, you know, my primary history or my primary theological education was in the area of history and then systematic theology. And it sort of came about in the sort of like historical theology milieu. And so it's important for us to sort of orient uh, a particular teaching within the era and the historical context that it's in. And so novationism is this error when applied to Christians, to individual Christians and how they interact with the church and how they interact right. with the means of grace. Donatism is kind of the flip side of that. And it's how that, that theology that novatius or novatius um, pioneered, how that applies to the clergy. Right. So novation, uh, novationism came about in, um, the middle of the third century or the middle of the third century. So in like 250, 251. And what, what was happening during that time was the Decian persecution. So there's all sorts of persecution all across the Roman empire. Um, now when, when persecution breaks out in the empire, it's not usually like universal. It's pockets of persecution. Some places it's really bad. Some places it's like not a big deal. Sometimes even within a city, there's, there's people who are basically left alone and others who are persecuted. A lot of it is political. Right. But what, what happened is um, there was a, a pope who was um, persecuted and martyred, and then a new pope was elected. And this pope, um, he wanted to bring those who had um, failed to confess the faith, basically those who had kind of crumpled under the, the threat of persecution and had denied the faith, or even worse, those who had um, gone so far as to actually offer sacrifice to uh, the emperor, which was kind of the, the litmus test that Rome was using. This pope basically said, all that it takes is repentance. It's all that it takes is outward contrition and some sort of indication that the, the repentance is sincere and you can be readmitted into the church. And so there was a rival pope who, a bishop in Rome, who kind of set himself up as a rival to, um, to this pope. And he wanted to say, no, if, if you, if you failed to confess the faith, if you, uh, denied Christ, then that's it. There's no coming back from that. And right. so this theology basically argued that a person who falls into a certain level of sin, a person who, who, um, abandons the faith, can never return to the faith. Even even if that abandonment happened in an extreme situation, um, even if it was a matter that that it was to save their life, there was no circumstances where someone who um, who had denied the faith could come back into the faith. And so this was opposed by uh, a bishop named Cyprian who uh, overcame the theology and, and eventually novationism was kind of denounced to say, no, that doesn't really, that doesn't really fit with the nature of grace as we see it in the gospel. Now, Cyprian had some other views on the church to basically say that salvation happens within the church. And, and his phrase is, there's no salvation uh, outside of the church. And that was actually a phrase that got picked up by Augustine. And there was a phrase that got picked up by Calvin. And it has this long pedigree. But 
We have to be careful to not swing so far on the Cyprianic side that the church becomes um, sacramental in itself. So we're not going to talk about that. But Cyprian did. I I don't want to leave people with the impression that Cyprian was like this perfect theology just because he kind of overcame Novatius. But he did have this um he did have this sort of other side to his theology that was a little bit of an overrealized eschatology or uh ecclesiology right 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 i'm with you okay so fast forward a hundred years or so it was really like 60 years and there had been more persecutions that had broken out even after um even after the edict of milan even after there was this um this decree that the the Christian religion was protected and it was a legal religion. There was still pockets once in a while of persecution in some of the outer parts of of the uh, empire. And so in Carthage, there was a group that popped up that was led by a man named Donatus, not Donatello. It's not a Ninja Turtle, but it's Donatus. It'd and, be awesome if and it was. The main issue in the the Donatus controversy was whether or not a particular bishop or priest had handed over the scriptures in order right. to have them taken by the authorities during these times of persecution. And so his argument was that um, basically what happened is um, the Bishop of Carthage had been someone who had handed over the scriptures in a previous persecution. And so they were saying that anyone that he had um, consecrated as a priest or a bishop, that consecration, those, those that, act, that bishopric uh, act of authority was not valid. And so all of those people who were priests that were consecrated by this bishop weren't actually priests. And so right. if you think about the sacramentology of the church at this time, that had huge impacts, right? Because the, the church was following that sort of Cyprianic perspective. The church was the place where God's means of grace in a, a sort of a substance sense through primarily the sacrament of communion, but baptism was a big issue. And then also things like marriage, these were all starting to be considered sacramental issues where God's salvific grace was sort of channeled through these corporal acts. If the priest who married you wasn't really a priest, then were you really married? If the priest who baptized you wasn't really a a priest because he was consecrated by this invalid bishop, then were you really baptized? And so all of these things started to develop. And the Donatists were saying, yeah, that's exactly right. That unless the priest or the bishop who baptized you or consecrated your ordination or married you or, or gave you penance or any of these other things, unless their life was pure and holy and upright, then Everything they did was invalid. So it was tying the efficacy of the various sacraments and sacramental actions to the holiness of the individual priests. So Augustine came along and said, no, 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 this this just doesn't work. Theologically, practically, just reasonably, this doesn't work. And he actually appealed back to Cyprian and took Cyprian's refutation of the Novatians, and he applied it now to this theology. And so it took a lot longer for Donatism to kind of get um, expelled out of the church, but eventually the theology overcame the day. And that's where we end up with a lot of different things that we see in the church now. So the reason that, um, even in Baptist circles, right, the reason that a adult who is baptized and then later um, is found to not be a Christian and then comes back to the faith, or we would say comes to the faith for the first time, the reason right. they're not baptized a second time is because theologically, Christians affirm that the efficacy and the validity of baptism is not dependent either on the 
um, the holiness of the one administering the baptism or even the holiness of the one receiving the baptism, but only on God's holiness and God's effectiveness and his, his grace alone is what, what causes baptism to do and be what it is. And this is what I think makes Donatism so fascinating in its origin, because whereas some of the other heresies we talked about had been a really a manipulation or a misconception or misconstruing the scripture itself, here we have this really unique context where Donatism taught that Christians were called to this form of asceticism and personal purity, and that holiness was proved in one's faithfulness and enduring persecution, which was happening in the real life, the average life of the Christian at the time. Right. So those whose faith wavered under the threat of death were considered to be impure and not worthy of being members of the church. And that's a hard thing to wrestle with because we just have, you and I have just no good conception of what actual persecution feels like or what it means to operate in that kind of environment. Understand what does it mean when Christians betray one another because they're under persecution? So in the, the, the time where this was really kind of coming to fruition, the essential question became, how could someone who had betrayed the word of God be holding a Christian office? I mean, the low moral character of the officiant was suddenly seen as annulling the grace that was supposedly received through the sacraments that he dispensed. So you can see, like, there's a real crisis here. Like, that is a, a, a real a real issue that needs to be weighed out. So, you know, you have Dante saying, not only should this traitor, I mean, a legitimate betrayer of the faith be excommunicated, but you know, also all those who held fellowship with him should be considered a traitor. So the church was to be made of these saints and not sinners. And so the Donatists, like you said, began like to rebaptize Christians who had been baptized in other churches. And of course, in doing so, now they're separating themselves from all their churches and basically upheld themselves as the only authoritative church body. So you can see what may have been this process of naturally wrestling through, wrestling through a really difficult issue that needed to be weighed out and understood now became a problem in which we are separating again. And then even beyond that, we're trying to understand, well, what does it mean for God to be efficacious in his work when we have sinful man at play here? And so it's a really big issue. And it's we would be fooling ourselves if we don't see the same thing in our own lives today as we go about trying to understand what it means for God to do his work among, again, sinful mankind. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that I think bears saying is sometimes my Presbyterian brothers um, and sisters, mostly brothers, um, they sometimes in a sort of snarky way when they're talking to Baptists who would say that a person who's baptized as an infant needs to be rebaptized or needs to be baptized when they um, join a Baptist church or if they, they come to, to create a Baptist convictions. Um, they sort of say like, well, no, cause we're not Donatists. And so that's not really fair. Right. It's not really a right. fair thing to say because according to Baptist theology, the, the Donatists were, were not saying that person was never baptized. What they're saying is that that person was baptized, but because the person who baptized them was not holy enough or was not upright enough or didn't have valid ordination sacrament, that that person needed to have the right of baptism administered again. What Baptists are saying when they say, no, a person that was baptized in an infant needs to be baptized again, it's sloppy way of talking because they don't actually believe they were baptized as an infant because people, according to Baptist theology, people who are baptized as an infant aren't actually baptized. It's just this empty ritual where we sprinkle water on a baby's head. Um, Obviously, Presbyterians don't believe that. And there's a difference in theology, and that's why getting to presuppositions is important. But at the outset of this conversation, we we should note that just because certain kinds of things um, might look a little bit like Donatism 
doesn't mean they are. So, for example, um, a a Baptist who is ordained in ministry by their church, um, by the ordaining body that they're ordained by, and then comes to Presbyterian convictions and goes and wants to become a minister in a Presbyterian uh, context, they're going to have to be licensed and ordained again. That's not because of Donatist convictions. It has more to do with practical implications of the uh, education and training required. So, so we have to be careful. We have to draw nuances that not everything that looks a little bit like Donatism actually is Donatism. Now, there are certainly Baptists out there that would say you have to be rebaptized and do it because of Donatist reasons. So we have to be careful of that. But it's important for us to recognize that we should be charitable to our brothers and sisters and not assume everything that looks a little bit like Donatism actually is. And that's a good point because it's a separate argument because when I would say like the average Baptist is saying, well, you need to be baptized again, that statement is not a reflection of the inadequacy of the one who oversaw the baptism. It's a reflection of just the separation between belief and acknowledged belief as right. opposed to bringing someone into the covenant as a child who, who of course, at such a young age cannot give intellectual assent, so to right. speak, right. to all of the theology that we've been talking about. So I've sometimes heard that critique used, but I almost feel like that's kind of like a cop-out, like to just say, like, we're not Donatists. A Baptist would say, yeah, of course not. And that's not right. what we're saying at all. Right. And actually, the response to from the Baptists would be like, well, we're not Roman Catholics. Because right, true. The, the efficacy of the um, of the sacrament is not automatic. Right. So, yes. so, so that game can go both directions. I don't know that we need to belabor that anymore because it, it, it really is auxiliary to the conversation, but I'm sure that there are people that are listening that are looking at it going, wait a second, you know, Tony got rebaptized when he joined this church. Does that mean he's a Donatist? Well, no, it's not. There, right. we, we can talk about that on a different show, but I'm not a Donatist for submitting to that. And my pastor's not a Donatist for asking me or expecting me to resubmit to that either. So that's a different conversation, but I wanted to make sure that we got that out of the way. Well, it's at least worth bringing up because it's possible that people may be familiar with the term Donatism in that context, in that context only. So it's worth saying. Yeah. So what I want to do is I want to take this conversation sort of away from this, the actual sacraments, right? Because I think, I think there's kind of this, it's sort of obvious for us that the efficacy of the sacraments is not tied to the person administering that. And so for us, that's kind of obvious, but I think there are ways as Christians that we don't necessarily um, we don't necessarily hold that theology in other areas that are the means of grace. So, so there's the two sacraments which are administered by, or um, were inaugurated by Christ himself, right? There's baptism and there's the Lord's supper. So properly speaking in the context of the original, um, the original controversy, there was also the, the sacrament of holy orders, marriage, penance, last rites, all these other sacraments that were later kind of weeded out and found to be unbiblical. But in our context, the only sacraments we have are baptism and the Lord's Supper. But there are other means of grace that we would acknowledge, prayer, um, preaching of the word, worship, um, fellowship in some ways, reading of scripture, all these other ways that God shows his grace to us. Um, that we would sometimes fall into a sort of a Donatist perspective on because of the way we think about theology. Yeah, I think that's really fair. I mean, what's interesting to me is Donatism was so firmly linked, was like tightly coupled with this idea of asceticism, which we tend to import, but don't call it that. So, right. you know, asceticism comes from the Greek word asikesis, meaning like to exercise, to train, to practice. And as good reform people, those are words I think which we would embrace in a sense. 
But if asceticism is this process of renouncing worldly pleasures that distract from spiritual growth and enlightenment in order to live a life of abstinence and austerity with this kind of sense of extreme self-denial, then we've gone too far. Right. But I think we do tend to live sometimes practically in that space. You know, we, we want this idea, we want to embrace this idea that there is something that I can do to promote my own holiness. And in promoting my own holiness, I somehow feel like on a given day, for instance, if I've gotten to my devotions and I've had a you know a strong time of prayer, then somehow, even in the back of our minds, maybe this is, I'm just preaching to me, there's this sense that God loves me more. I'm going to be more efficacious today yeah. because I have accomplished these things. I've become more aesthetic, so to speak. And so this thing is like alive and well in that sense. At least that's where I see it. I mean, where do you see it? Yeah. I mean, this reminds me of a, of a situation that I encountered when I was in college. And this was before I knew anything about Donatism. Um, I was having a really terrible day. I think my, my dad had been in the hospital. Um, you know, it was just a really bad time. And um, I went to my friend at college and I said, can you, would you be able to, you know, we've got class this hour, but would you be able to just cut class and just really spend some time in prayer with me? Cause I really just need, I need some time to pray, but I don't really have the words for it. So I need you to help me. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I would except um, I I slipped up and I looked at porn last night. And so I don't think that I'm the person wow. who be praying with you today. And Interesting. His, his perspective was God's not going to listen to my prayers because I had this sin in my life from last right. night. And, right. And at the time, that actually made a lot of sense to me, right? And, and I think our default, um, one of the things we haven't really pointed out is there are certain heresies that are kind of our default perspective, Right. Pelagianism is kind of the default perspective. Arianism is kind of the default perspective. Modalism is kind of the default perspective. And the scriptures correct us in that. But Donatism is also sort of the default perspective because all these heresies are tied together. So right. Donatism is sort of just Pelagianism when applied to the way that God works through his church or through his people. And so this person was saying, I'm not holy enough to come before God on your behalf or with you. And so you should find someone who's more holy to do that. And that made sense to me. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'll go find someone who didn't look at porn last night. Well, in reality, like porn is bad, right? I'm not saying it's not in any sense, but so is not loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And I don't right. do that on any time. I don't ever do that. There's never a time right. that I'm fully 100% devoted to God. And so if our if our ability to pray, if our ability to come before the Lord, if our ability to do good works of charity or to edify each other, if any of those things are dependent on my personal holiness, then I'm in a lot of trouble. If I'm talking about personal holiness that I have somehow generated or somehow mustered up myself. Right. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting example. And I think that if we're all honest with ourselves, we've at least thought that way at least mm -hmm. once in our lives, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, for because, sure. And I've even heard actually people argue to this like asceticism perspective from the Bible. Right. So like using things like the Nazarite vow, which could maybe you could see as like a mild form of that kind of thing. Now, obviously, the people of the Old Testament, they took that vow and consecrated themselves to God and refrained from drinking wine and, you know, cutting their hair, which why would you want to refrain from wine and cut your hair? Not cut your hair, <laughs> but the... What's interesting is I, I've heard a lot of people even look at like First Peter two eleven and First Corinthians, where you know, First Peter two eleven is beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, right. which wage war against your soul. And then in First Corinthians, uh, quote, but I, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So, like per what you just said, that almost sounds like well that fits right in. So what's the problem? Yeah. I mean, I think the yeah. problem is that followers of Christ 
are of course told to deny themselves, but this idea that I have to promote my own personal holiness to some kind of standard that I set myself takes that command to an extreme because the Bible never suggests that a Christian should purposely seek out like discomfort or pain. You know, God has richly blessed us with everything for our enjoyment. And actually the, the Bible warns against like putting categories on people that don't exist in the scriptures, like forbidding people to marry in order to, or to abstain from certain foods in the sense that like, well, those people are more holy. Or like you said, because uh, on this particular day, in this particular time period, I mean, how crazy does that sound? Like in this 24 hours or whatever, I abstain from some like particular sin and therefore that qualifies me to be more helpful to you in prayer. Right. I think when we start to unpack it like that, we, we realize how crazy it sounds, not only because in our ears, it makes us the own destiny and though in command of our own sense of faith and ability to serve God, but also because it clearly takes away all of his sovereignty as if like God cannot work in this world yeah. because for whatever reason I've jacked something up. Yeah. So, and that's Donatism. Like we don't call it that because we don't know that name, but that's exactly what it is. And it's already been dealt with historically in the church. Yeah. Yeah. And another way that I see it, um, you know, this is probably a little controversial, but, um, you know, sometimes, do. sometimes you can listen to a Stephen Furtick sermon and really be blessed by it. I'm not advocating listening to Stephen no, sure. Furtick. I agree. But I agree. Stephen Furtick is an excellent communicator, and sometimes he preaches the gospel. And so I think sometimes we have this perspective of like, well, unless – and we tie this even sometimes to not not just – matters of holiness or theology but like sometimes i've heard it i've heard it tied to like what seminary a person went to so i've heard right. sometimes like oh well you can't you can't listen to him he went to fuller well yeah fuller's right. fuller's a liberal seminary and you're going to hear a lot of crazy crap out of there but james white went to fuller like there's a lot of people that went to liberal seminaries because for all sorts of reasons, maybe it's the only seminary they could get into because of their grades, or maybe it's the only seminary that was close and they had a sick parent and they needed to, you know, they need to stay close so they could help their kid. No, there's all sorts right. of reasons why a person may end up at a particular school that have nothing to do with their theology or their, um, their holiness. But I've heard people say stuff like that, or even, um, you know, we had this question that we talked about uh, last week on our one of our Christmas cast episodes about using worship music from somebody who has maybe personal sin in their life or something like that. Or I hear it sometimes come up. Um, this is really common. You know, the the topic of like Tulian Davidian or Mark Driscoll is like a perennial topic in reform circles. And right now, praise God, it's not so much should we continue to listen to their new stuff. For a long time, there was a lot of questions about whether we should be um, listening to the new content they produce. And right. without sliding off into the Donatist side, yeah, it's certainly possible that Tulian Chavidian could preach a sermon that is full of the gospel and and edifies people and people get saved from it. Like God, the Holy Spirit can work through that. That doesn't mean we should be treating him as a valid minister of the gospel. But that's a different right. thing. But right. a lot of times what happens is people, you know, we talked about this with Derek Webb, people, people have these figures from their past that had tremendous spiritual impact on them at the time. And these people have since fallen from or abandoned the faith. But what do we do with that content? Right. Is it okay for me to listen to thankful by Cademan's call because Derek Webb wrote it? Is it okay right. for me to listen to wedding dress by Derek Webb? Um, well, if, if the efficacy, I mean, we're obviously we're beyond the idea of sacramental efficacy, but if the the value of that song is only found in the personal holiness and salvific status of the person who wrote it, well, then no, we shouldn't. Because everything that I've heard, um, Derek Webb was not any more personally holy back then than he is now. 
And since he's left the faith and rejected Christ, we can be reasonably certain that he wasn't a Christian then because he's not a Christian now. And unless God does a miracle, he's not going to be a Christian in the future. That means that that song that I got such such spiritual insight and benefit from was written by a reprobate, un- unregenerate person who hates the Lord. But that doesn't right. change the fact that that song was used by the Holy Spirit at a particular point in my life to teach me important truths about the scriptures. Well, that's the main problem with Dantism, right? It's that no person is pure in the sight of God. I mean, that's straight Romans 3.23. Right. So if absolute holiness is required to serve God, then we're all unfit. I mean, that's absolutely clear by the scriptures. And yeah. I think what we're seeing is that Dantism's view of sin was just far too narrow. I mean, the Dantists demanded rectitude of the priests and the bishops and the other church leaders according to their own definition of rectitude, which was basically to embrace an asceticism and some kind of unwavering fortitude under persecution. But basically what Jesus taught us is that moral uprightness involves much more than just some kind of external conformity to a church standard. And so like, I think as we're getting like super practical about this, what we're basically ask, asking, like, especially in the case of Tullian as just an example, not that we, we always make him the poster child, but he's a great example would be, what does the holiness of the minister have to do with the efficacy of the preached word? I mean, right. Are we falling into a Donatist error by insisting that the holiness of the minister has some sort of causal relationship to the power of the preached word? Because I, I'm pretty sure everybody with an earshot of our voices would, I mean, few of them would deny that God's word is bound by the holiness or lack thereof of the minister, as if like the conversion or the sanctification of the entire flock depended entirely upon right. that person's personal purity. But Christ may be preached by those who are outside of Christ. I kind of like what you're saying, right? And to positive effect upon the listeners. I mean, that's why Paul says in like Philippians, you know, the former proclaimed Christ at a selfish ambition, not, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in imprisonment. But he's basically like, what then? He's happy that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed and in that he rejoices. So yeah. like, what, what say you about this? Like, what is the connection or even dare we say causal relationship between Let's pick ministers in particular because those are the ones we should all be sitting under. The holiness or the personal piety of the minister and the word preached and Donatism. Where do all those three meet or where should they not meet at all? Well, I think, you know, Donatism um, sometimes masquerades as kind of this like hyper spiritual um, error. That it's all about like what's going on in the spiritual realm and what's happening in terms of metaphysical realities with the sacraments. And, and those were all conversations that were going on during Augustine's time because you have to remember the sacraments had this whole metaphysical apparatus attached to them having to do with Aristotelian categories that really, really doesn't come from the Bible. So sometimes when you read it from a purely historical element, that's sort of what happens is it is, is the sacrament effective ex opera operato by the working of the work right. regardless of the person doing the work? Or is it effective ex operante operato by the working of the one doing the work, right? So there's these, these Latin categories and metaphysics. But at the end of the day, Donatism is actually an error that has to do with the concrete practical realities of the church, right? So it's, it's does, does the efficacy of the preached word, as you're asking, is that tied in any sense to the holiness or the validity of the person preaching? And the answer is theologically no, right? We could give, um, you know, take, take a really, really good, um, orator, right? Somebody like a, a Barack Obama, who's excellent at delivering speeches, right? Somebody like, um, 
Winston Churchill, who I believe was a Christian, but it was Church of England and everybody was part of the Church of England. So who knows? But somebody who's really good at delivering a speech, an actor, right. a, a poet, whatever. And you, you give them a sermon, right? You give them a gospel filled expository sermon and you train them and you teach them to deliver that sermon. Well, when they deliver that sermon, people might get saved, even though the person has no training, they have no spiritual life of their own, they, they, they don't have that, because the power of God's word does not reside in the person delivering it, but in the Holy Spirit who in, who applies it to the hearts of the listener. And so, right. like I said, Tullian Tavidian, who at this point in his life, the Bible teaches us to treat him as though he's not a Christian. When he delivers a sermon or when he gives a teaching that is full of the gospel, that doesn't mean it's not still full of the gospel, right? And the gospel is the power of salvation unto men, right? Not not the gospel preacher, but the gospel preached is the salvation that is right. delivered to men. And so on one level, theologically, no, there's no connection between the personal piety of the, the person delivering the sermon um, and the efficacy of the sermon. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a practical connection or practical element to the personal holiness and the reputation of a minister in in terms of how the person hearing the sermon receives that sermon, right? Paul, right. Paul in his qualification for elders, most of them are character traits. So there seems to be this, 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 this sort of like um, cognitive dissonance between what we're saying, right? The personal piety and the holiness of the preacher is irrelevant to the efficacy of the, the message. But at the same time, almost all of Paul's criteria for who can be a pastor are related to the personal piety and holiness of the preacher. So right. what we have to recognize, though, is that there's a difference between saying God cannot work through a faulty, unholy minister, which is what Donatism says when you boil it all down, and saying pr providentially, prudentially, in terms of wisdom, people are more likely to respond to the gospel when it's being preached by a person who believes the gospel, loves the gospel, has been changed by the Holy Spirit, and is personally growing in holiness, the Holy Spirit is probably more likely to use that than right. uh, than someone else. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible for him to uh, to operate in a way that uses a, bro a crooked stick, as it were. Because what we're talking about here is transcendent truth, which we're not right. often used to encountering. So it's, of course, outside of ourselves, outside of even the minister himself. So like, let me throw this on you, see how this feels, because this is how I was trying to differentiate it in my mind. I, of course, agree with what you're saying, and I would probably further articulate that by saying holiness or like the personal piety of the minister is a means used by God. He doesn't right. have to use it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, for but sure. It, but it is a means. So which is why like Paul is writing to Timothy in, in chapter four, first Timothy, and saying things like, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So I think like you're saying, if we look, especially in the epistles, we're going to see a plain reading of that text leaves us with little doubt that the personal holiness and perseverance in holiness are means along with teaching true doctrine that God uses in salvation and sanctification of Christ's bride. And I like that you brought Paul, of course we would bring Paul up, but I like that we bring him into this because Paul's own ministry would have been severely compromised if he were not a godly man. It's yeah. interesting to me that he says so many times, and this is wild, so many times, 
follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So he's putting himself forward as saying, you know, come in my direction, look at what I'm doing. And so how could Paul have made those kind of admonitions in his ministry if he were not godly or did not provide a good example to follow? So I like, I like anytime somebody throws out the two words cognitive dissonance, cause that's pretty banging <laughs> generally, but you're right. So like what we're basically saying is it's not as if like all of the efficacy depends on the personal piety of the minister. And yet at the same time, what, what would you want more than for your own pastor to be so concerned with his own personal holiness in the, in a righteous way that you would be you would want him to pursue those things so that when he gets up and addresses the people, he's speaking heart to heart, as it were, which incidentally, can I just say, almost just, I almost just started to do book cast, like chapter one of <laughs> one preaching. I almost just wanted, so again, that's like just a little teaser, but like the power of the preached word is not like entirely unrelated to the piety of the minister, but it's not contingent upon that. So right. I think like, the reason for ineffective preaching can be in part related to a lack of personal piety. I mean, piety. I mean, the scriptures I think allow for that kind of view, um, and that's why, like in First Thessalonians, we find the words like "because our gospel came to you, not only in word but also in power yeah. and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction." You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So then when like in that very like quintessential saying, when Robert Murray McShay says, "The greatest need of my people is my personal holiness." There's something legitimate to that, right? but it's not the whole picture. But like you said, I think what we often do is we enwrap ourselves in this sense that like things must be hyper-spiritualized. Music is not really good unless it's like super pithy and really deep and uses big words or... Uh, you know, generation, generationally, like I can't participate in, in music by a mu- like a time of worship through music if it's not of kind of a certain quality or character either in its melody because it's more complex or in its words because those are the things more complex. All right. that is in a sense kind of a donatistic error. I mean, yeah. am I way off base on that? No, you're not. And I think what we're kind of circling around is, um, a lot of times we miss the fact that God tells us in his word how he has condescended and chosen to work in the world. Right? True. He is not he is not telling us that this is the only way that he is able to work in the world. And that that's I think where we we need to draw a distinction is um God reveals to us in his word how he ordinarily operates. Right, he ordinarily uh, regenerates people by means of the preached word. Um, primarily on the Lord's Day is my conviction, um, but the preached word. Right, that's not to say that God can't or even sometimes doesn't um, bring people to faith through other means. Right, and I want to read this, and this doesn't seem at first blush like it is. Um, like it is related, but it is, I promise you. So this is chapter 10 of the Westminster Confession, which is of effectual calling. And um, I'm going to read uh, section three here. And it says, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. And so, so why they're saying this is because they just got done talking about how effectual calling 
ordinarily happens by means of the outward preaching of the word. But then they put this in here to clarify, and this is a huge source of comfort for parents who've lost children. But in general, this should be a source of comfort for all of us. They clarify that although God ordinarily works, ordinarily calls people by this means over here, by the preaching of the word, there are some times where he, he calls other people who are elect by a different means. Now, it would be presumptuous of us to say that God, we should expect God, for example, to save um, the Sentinelese people that John Chow went to try to share the gospel with and was killed, who don't have the gospel. They don't have the scriptures. They don't even, they don't even have outside influence. It would be presumptuous of us, and we would be uh, derelict in duty to just say like, well... God is going to save those people however he wants. And so, you know, we don't need to share with them because section four here basically says the idea that people will be saved apart from the gospel as an ordinary course of things is pernicious and dangerous. But what they're saying is that although it would be presumptuous of us to think that God ordinarily saves people in a meet with a means other than what he's revealed, it would be foolish of us to say God is not capable of saving people apart from the means that he has uh, revealed in his word. And so there's this tension. And I think that this plays into it is that God ordinarily works. He ordinarily works through pious, holy men who are devoted to Christ and indwelt by the spirit who work hard and study hard, right? They spend tens of thousands of dollars going to seminary and they, they spend hours and hours in their study Sometimes they, um, they, their families have to make sacrifice. Their kids have to make sacrifice. That's how God ordinarily works is through the hard work of pastors. That's not to say that he doesn't sometimes work through some Yahoo getting up there who has never been to seminary and who literally just opened up the passage and started talking and didn't prepare at all. Sometimes he does, but ordinarily right. he doesn't. And that's how I think these two things that seem like they're at odds, how I think they cohere together. I love that. I mean, in the end, I think heresy is a function of either completely misunderstanding God or making him too small. And we definitely have the latter in this case. That God is big enough that in his sovereignty, he may decide to work outside of what we might consider like his normal means. But it doesn't mean that he is not, of course, working with the same kind of power and authority. Right. And that reminded me of two things. So I'm kind of a big farmer's almanac nerd. Like I love the farmer's almanac, but <laughs> if you've ever picked up a copy, people should just pick up a copy of that. Let, let, we'll do a book club on that. There we go. But it's also like a really weird book because there's a lot of astrology in it. Yeah. And I was thinking recently of the wise men and how God is clear in the old Testament scriptures, like stay away from astrology. There, there's nothing in that because you're worshiping, of course, these celestial bodies rather than the one who created them and in creating all kind of accoutrements to them, stay away from that nonsense. And yet what we have in through like God's perfect design in his sovereignty and in, in some kind of speculate, even through like the presence of, ba- of Daniel in Babylon, we have these men looking for a particular celestial body, which God uses for these in theory, pagan leaders to come and worship this newborn king. And so that what we would say is outside of what we'd say, like the normal means of God, you know, in kind of this ordinary sense. And so I remember in this previous church that I attended as well, that there was a particular group, a ministry for those who were had mental disabilities. And for whatever reason, I don't know the derivation of this, but they called that group the A-Team, like the crack commando unit from the 1970s, which I think is awesome, but I'm yeah. not sure really what the connection was there. Hmm. But uh, they would often show this image 
uh, sometimes during gathered worship on the Lord's Day, when there was something that the A-team was participating in, they'd often do a Christmas play. And it was very moving. And it was an image of uh, them outside. And it was all of these paraphernalia that they used to basically support their bodies. So wheelchairs and crutches. And the caption just said, uh, the A-team when Jesus returns. And even though the theology on that is a little bit strange, the point was real. And that is that God, on his own volition, saves those whom he chooses. Yeah. And that really the Reformed tradition is the only one that comports with the scriptures that says God can save that child who is, you know, stillborn, that God can save that person who, who, for whatever reason, by God's design, does not have the ability to give an intellectual assent to the gospel in the way that you or I might give an intellectual assent to it. The Reformed tradition is the only one that comports with the scripture says that God is able to save like full stop. And so I think that we see that here in the reverse, and that's the problem. But what a comfort, like you said, at the end of the day, to know that not only is God in control, not only is he big enough to decide how he will work, where he will work, and with whom he will work, but that he gets the ultimate say. And as there, if there is, you know, to, to kind of, this is horrible, to step outside of presuppositionalism, but if there is like a ruler of the universe, isn't that exactly what we'd expect him to be yeah. like? Yeah. And so I think that again, we everything just meets and marries so well here. And that's again why Dantism is so dangerous. Even if we take it in bite-sized pieces, where we realize we've been chewing on it for a while, just because we've kind of imported this sense of going all the way back to the beginning, that well, if on a if I have a good day spiritually, then for whatever reason, that's a good day spiritually. Like no such thing exists, right. honestly. Yeah. There is no good day. And we should want it that way, because what that means is that God loves us so steadily and so unequivocally that we can come into his presence because of mercy without exception. And yeah. that's really what we want, I think, at the end of every day, no matter whether or not we feel like we perform the way that we should or we haven't. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about this as we've been talking. And on one level, um, the phrase that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Um, praise God that that's true because there are no straight sticks. Right. There's no stick that's not crooked. But the reality is there there are sticks. If we're talking about sticks being people, which is usually how it's used, there are some sticks that are closer to straight than others. Right. Right. There there's um, you know, there's Mike Horton, who by all all outward measures is a pretty straight stick. And then there's like Adolf Hitler, who's as crooked of a stick as you can get. And yes, I just compared Mike Horton to Adolf <laughs> Hitler. But but the fact is that on the scale, the relative scale, right? Within humanity, there's straight sticks and there's crooked sticks. And True. even though with all of the theological uh, nuances that there's really no such thing as a straight stick, the point is that God ordinarily uses the straight stick. That right. doesn't mean he can't use the crooked stick. But I think what we've done sometimes is now we've actually swung so far to wanting to affirm. It's like, okay, there's this funny joke. I think it was a Babylon B article, but it may have just been a meme. I don't know. I can't, sometimes I can't tell the difference between a Babylon B article and just a meme. But it was basically like Calvinist dog loses his mind when his owner says, good boy. Cause there are no good boys. There's no good boys. Don't you know that? There's no, right? So, so we've swung oh, so far to that end to try to like make sure we're couching couching reality properly in terms of total depravity, right? There's no right. there's no good boys, there's no straight sticks. But in reality, we have to recognize that God 
God makes us straight sticks, right? There's and there's progressive sanctification, but there's also definitive sanctification. And so in a certain sense, like I'm a straight stick, you're a straight stick, right? If you're a Christian, you're a straight stick and God, God ordinarily operates in terms of the, the spread of the gospel through the people that he has called to be holy people. And right. so, so we can't abandon that even as we recognize that the, the power of God is not bound and is not limited by the straightness of the stick, right? God can right. use the crooked stick even though he usually doesn't. And that's, that's something that we have to understand. And Donatism is basically the idea that God, God can't use the straight stick or the crooked stick. Right. He can't. He can't use the crooked stick. Sorry, God. I'm sorry that you can't use the crooked stick. You're out of luck. We've got. You're out of luck. And at the end, at the end of the day, right? We've kind of like circled around this this last year. There's all these different theologies that get theology proper wrong, right? We've talked about Molinism that gets this idea that like God is God is bound by by the limitations that are put on Him by creatures by creaturely freedom. Arminianism mm-hmm. is the same thing. God is bound. Uh, he can't save you if you don't want to be saved, right? Even Lutheranism, He can't save you if you resist His will. Donatism, if, and I'm not necessarily putting Donatism in the same category as those ones, but Donatism, he can't operate through you if you're not, if you're not holy, right? All of these things circle around the air, the same air, but at the end of the day, what we as Reformed Christians affirm is that God is God and he can do anything that's consistent with his own nature and his own will. And if that, if that means that he gets lots of people saved through the ongoing sinful preaching of Mark Driscoll and Tulian Chavidian, praise God for that. Praise right. God for that. I don't think that's going to be the norm. I, I would be really surprised if it was, but God surprises us all the time. So we have to remember that God is a God who does all that he pleases. And sometimes, paradoxically, he is pleased to use the least expected things in the universe, even if he usually does it. God does not does not operate in ways that are unexpected all that often. You know, the 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 moving of the seasons, right? He's a stable God. He's a God of order. He's a God of of ordinariness. Things happen on predictable patterns, but we can't restrict God to those predictable patterns. Right. Well said. And what's that old saying that something like truth is stranger than fiction because we've written fiction to suit ourselves? Like God will surprise us. And yet at the same time, it's clear that he desires to use holiness as a means uh, for efficacious preaching and teaching and for the promulgation of the gospel. And so the, the straight stick is the abundant life. Like we should always want to, to pursue that direction. Yeah. And yet at the same time, in this wonderful world that God has created, we dare not limit him to just those straight sticks. But Dr. Horton, you heard it here first. We think you're a straight <laughs> stick. Yes. Come on our podcast. Yes. Come talk to us about your straight stickedness. We would really love to talk to you. Yeah. I, he, he, um, I guess he's on sabbatical from teaching and from the White Horse Inn to work on some project that he's got going on secularism. So, um, so I was plenty of time. I was like a little bit offended <laughs> when I, our our request for an interview for his new justification book got turned down. But now that I know it's because he's like on this major project, um, that I'm a little bit less offended now. Yeah, but we're not going to stop. No, I'm going to call him on his cell phone. Yeah, we're <laughs> which I think I probably have. It might be his home phone. That's great. Please let me know when you do that because I definitely want to be on that call. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's. How would you start that conversation? Would it be like a heyo or kind of like a. I think Dr. I would Horton. just start it the way we start a normal episode. 
So I'd be like, welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Tony. And he'd be like, hello. Hello. I'd be like, you're supposed to say I'm Mike. I'm Mike. And this, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I love that. It would just be a Reformed Brotherhood episode trap. Yeah, exactly. That's actually a good idea. We should just trap people on the show by calling them. And then if they're like, what are you doing? I'll be like, don't you remember? We talked about this. You were going to be on the show. Uh, oh, 2019 goals. I that's love a it. good idea for a podcast by itself. I don't know what you'd call it, but that's a good idea for a podcast. Oh, that's good. So, so here's something funny. Speaking of that, in terms of like surprising people, so there is, which I've, I've recommended this before, but there is this church in California uh, that's reformed. It's called uh, Compass Point Bible Church. And the the pastor there had long made this big deal of saying, like, you should know the gospel so well that somebody should be able to wake you up at two in the morning and you should be able to explain what it is. So the youth group ministry took that so seriously at the yes. beginning, of course, teaching and then waking up during youth retreats, their youth and making them explain the gospel. It is absolutely hilarious. Not only because like people waking up at a sound sleep are just straight up funny, but these kids can preach the gospel at two yeah. in the morning after getting woken up at a sound yeah. sleep. And, like we should all be able to do that. Yeah. I, um, my friend Tim and I, who Tim was the best man in my wedding. So you've met Tim. We used to do, um, object lesson drills. And basically what it was is like out of nowhere, he would be like, uh, guitar and he'd point at the guitar on the thing. And I'd have to like somehow give like an object <laughs> lesson. Like I was teaching a youth group lesson based on the guitar and how it applies. Yeah. So I'd be like, Oh, like God tunes us. And sometimes he tunes us quick and our strings snap, but he's always faithful to change, you know, like really at the time, like really dumb, like contrived things, but like, it's yeah. a real thing. Like you should, you should be able to look around you because we affirm this is totally off topic. And we're, it's like a whole new episode that we've started all over. So like, this is episode 119. We're just going to go straight through. <laughs> Um, you should be able to, right? Because all of creation testifies to who God is, right? Right. So there's nothing in creation. Was it Abraham Kuyper? It says there's nothing in creation that God doesn't point at and proclaim is his, right? So right. I should be able to point at the lamp. The lamp is an easy one. I should be able to point at the lamp on my desk and give a gospel presentation based on that. Obviously, I need to connect it to scripture, but like the lamp on my desk proclaims the goodness and glory of God. The the beer glass right. on my desk proclaims the goodness and glory of God. The pen on my desk proclaims the goodness and glory of God. So that's actually like a really good experiment to do is like, could you, could you take something that's going on in the world right now? And could you use that to pivot it into a discussion about Jesus Christ and the gospel? If you can't, right maybe you should think about that and do it a little bit. Why haven't we played that game yet? We're gonna have to do that. I don't know. We should, we should definitely do that. Where we don't we don't give each other with the objects ahead of time, and then we just drop it live. Yeah, we should Danger. do that. We it's should be great. We well, should call people and do that to them on the phone. And we should do. It. <laughs> I feel like there are laws against that. Yeah, I'd have to tell them they're being recorded before we could start. Yeah. But those those pesky federal it's laws. All well, good. in some ways, this brings us entirely full circle because. I think, if I understand it correctly, and part of, at least for me, the reason why we wanted to talk about these heresies all throughout these various series is to understand the errors, to acknowledge that they exist, to give label yeah. to them so that it might both strengthen our faith, help us to be able to come against them, and then even just in casual conversation to be able to better articulate what we believe and why we believe it. So all of these episodes are cataloged on our website, reformbrotherhood.com, and you can find them by going to episodes. They're all categorized under this heresy cast. So you can go back at any given time and enjoy all kind of wonderful heresy conversation. Yes. Yeah. 
For sure. Well, don't forget to order your copy of Reform Preaching by Joel Beakey. Um, we would love it if you'd order it through the WTS bookstore link. Um, and we're going to do that again. The, the 23rd is going to be the first episode where we go through chapter one. So get your order in soon so you have it in time to read it a couple times before we go. We would love it if you join us kind of on this uh, this journey over the next however many months that we're going to do it. Just do it. It's coming for you. But until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh-